So I want to ask, as we think today, how do we discern the will of God? Do we pray? Do we read the scriptures? Do we ask other people? What kind of response do we expect? How do we interpret any response? How do we know that we're acting in accordance with God's purpose for us? And what does true obedience look like? So today's text is about discerning the will of God, and it's also about the relationship between obedience and worship. And we've been working through the first book of Samuel, and the last few chapters especially have shown Saul, the king, struggling in his role as military leader. So this is where we pick up. He's already lost God's blessing on his rule because he didn't follow Samuel's instructions from God in chapter 13, and he went ahead and made sacrifice before he was supposed to. So we've reached a point in the narrative today where Israel's again facing military threat. We learn from the end of the previous chapter that there are no metalsmiths throughout all of Israel, which means no weapons, and the Israelites are even dependent on the Philistines to have their farming equipment maintained. So Jonathan and Saul are the only people in Israel who possess weapons. Both of them, the story tells us, have a sword and a spear. And meanwhile, the Philistines are readying for battle and they're assembling nearby. So in this narrative, just to comment a bit on structure at the beginning, we really see Jonathan as a character who serves to highlight Saul's shortcomings. And the reason we see this is because we're directed to make comparisons between them by the way that the narrative is structured. So the chapter that's on Jonathan, chapter 14, is sandwiched between two chapters that deal with Saul and with particular failings of Saul's. So we're really looking and comparing the way that they both respond to military threat here. We see Saul constantly worrying about the size of his army. He counts the numbers. Whereas Jonathan in this passage recognises that numbers don't matter, that uh, numbers don't mean anything if the Lord is willing to act on his behalf. So with the Philistine threat looming, we have Saul sitting safely in camp. And not only that, but in his camp, he has the priest Eli's great-grandson, Ahijah, who's carrying a priestly ephod. And an ephod is a kind of priestly garment. It, it contains pockets for what is called, you'll see it come up in the text, uh, they're called the urim and thummim. And these are objects that are used to define, divine the will of God. So when you see them speak of casting lots, they're using these two objects to consult God. It's connected to divination. Uh, the priest would supply a divine oracle that would then guide the king or the leader in battle. This is quite a common uh, experience and occurrence in the ancient Near East. But what's important here and why we notice it here is because it echoes the earlier failings that we saw when Eli's sons took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with the Philistines. You might remember Lee spoke of that a few weeks ago. And really, Saul is making the same mistake. He's basically using a sacred religious item, essentially as a talisman. So he's using it to control the outcome of the battle by manipulating the will of God. So unbeknown to Saul, Jonathan hatches his own plan. And actually, the fact that he doesn't tell his father or consult his father is already setting up a distance between the two of them that will become important as the story goes on. He's just got his armour bearer for company and he takes on a garrison of Philistines in a surprise attack. And we see that he doesn't carry any talisman. He, instead, he says, it may be that the Lord will act for us. And he isn't expressing doubt or a lack of confidence here. Rather, he's um, acknowledging that it's a matter of God's will and not his own. It's really the complete opposite of what we see earlier in the story. 
So when Israel's elders use the ark as a tool to try and manipulate divine blessing or even what Saul is doing in this battle. Jonathan knows that God is not required to act simply because his name is invoked, but he places his trust in God anyway. He takes the initiative. He's acting in faith that God will also act. And it appears that God does act. As Jonathan and his armour bearer attack the Philistines, an earthquake shakes the whole area. And this is understood to be God entering into the battle on Jonathan's behalf. So then we want to look at what does Saul do in response to this. Saul's still in camp and his lookouts inform him that the Philistines are fleeing. And likely he's even felt the earthquake himself from his position in camp. So the first thing he does is ask for a roll call. He's assuming that some of his troops must have initiated a battle and it's clear that he's expecting a lot more than two at this point. And he then makes the decision to enter the battle and to push Israel's advantage now that the Philistines are fleeing. But first he calls for the priest to bring up the ark and it's possible the ark was brought up specially for this, we're not really sure. Uh, But he does that so that he can divine the will of God before entering the battle. But while he's in the process of doing this, the chaos in the Philistine camp is increasing all the time. And obviously he feels the sense of urgency and the need to push that advantage. So he tells the priest who's, who's carrying out the ritual of divining the will of God, he says, withdraw your hand and interrupt the ritual. And one commentator captures the difference between Saul and Jonathan here. Uh, He says that Jonathan enters into battle prematurely, but in a worshipful spirit, whereas Saul is prematurely concluding worship in order to enter the battle. And according to the text, we see that the Lord gave Israel the victory that day, but it's probably more due to Jonathan's inspiring act than any military strategy of Saul's. So the story goes on. We see that the troops are weary from battle and the sensible thing at this time would be to stop, to rest, to replenish their strength by eating a meal. But instead, Saul lays on his army an oath. He says, Cursed be anyone who eats food before it is evening and I have avenged my enemies. Now there's an appropriate time for fasting, no doubt, but in between battles is certainly not one of them. But the troops go hungry. But Jonathan, on the other hand, and we're getting this contrast again, he's not there to hear the charge that Saul lays on his army. So when he comes across some wild honeycomb, he doesn't hesitate to stop and to eat. And a soldier immediately clues him in on the oath, and then he's openly critical of Saul's decision. He says, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if today the troops had eaten freely of the spoil taken from their enemies? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. And the fact that he mentions the spoils of of the enemy reveals more of the motivation behind this oath as well. So not only is it being driven by Saul's desire for personal vengeance, but he also seems to be worried. He wants to make sure the troops don't divide up the spoils before he gets there, because as king he has first pick. So by the time the troops do get to eat, they've been battling all day and they're so hungry that they disobey the traditional prohibition against eating bloody meat. So Saul responds at this point by building an altar to the Lord and he has the troops make sacrifices to atone for their violation, which is the appropriate atonement in that circumstance. So Saul plans to do further battle and he's reminded by his priest to pause and to discern the will of God. 
And this is actually the first time in the whole Samuel narrative that we see Saul explicitly inquiring of God, asking God directly a question, which is something you would expect from a king. And remember, the last time that they'd gone through this process, he'd interrupted it in his haste to take advantage of the Philistines' weak position. So this time, even though he goes through with the entire ritual, he received no answer from God. And the fact that God doesn't answer drives home just how dire Saul's position is before God because he'd failed to keep God's commandment in the previous chapter. He really has lost the Lord's favour. But he doesn't seem to accept this and he's looking instead for another cause. The lack of a response from God cannot be because of his own rejection, but rather someone must have violated the oath that he placed on everyone. And when Jonathan is eventually revealed as the guilty one, and this is where the casting lots comes into the story, Saul's committed to following through on his word, even to the point of killing his own son. And it's only because the people step in on Jonathan's behalf that he is spared. So you can imagine what all of this is doing for Saul's credibility as a leader and as king in front of his people. But moving on to the next chapter, Saul is suddenly, and with no explanation, rejoined by Samuel, who's been conspicuously absent from the previous one. Saul had previously parted, sorry, Samuel had previously parted ways with Saul after telling him that he'd fallen from God's favour as king. So why is he back now? Well, if we look at the rejection closely in chapter 13, which you don't have it with you, but it seems to apply more to Saul's heirs and to his dynasty. So we don't actually see a final rejection in his own person as king in that early narrative. So it seems almost like he's getting another chance here. He's instructed by God through Samuel to go and attack the Amalekites, to utterly destroy all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul immediately begins by marshalling and numbering his troops, which is not a good sign. Usually when this kind of counting of troops occurs in the narrative, it's there to indicate a lack of faith. It's this resorting to superior military strength rather than relying on God to achieve victory. So again, we see that comparison with Jonathan's approach. They defeat the Amalekites, but instead of destroying everything, it says Saul and the people spared Agag, who was the king, and the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. Samuel has another word from the Lord that God regrets making Saul king. And this is something that angers Samuel, probably frustrates him because of his own involvement in that process. And he passes the night in lament and possibly he's even interceding on Saul's behalf. Even with a sleepless night, he gets up early to meet Saul, only to find that Saul has been off making a monument to himself. And when they finally meet, Saul is jovial. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. So now I want you to to picture Saul's voice just dripping with sarcasm as he says, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? But it seems to be lost on Saul. He doesn't seem to recognise a problem. The sheep and the cattle are to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And anyway, it was the people that spared them, not him. And note that he doesn't even mention Agag here. And we're not entirely certain at this point if Saul is well-meaning but incompetent or whether he's actually hypocritical and devious. There's a bit of debate. 
but he finally does acknowledge his sin and he begs for another chance. He says along the, something along the lines of, don't embarrass me in front of the people. Come back with me so we can worship your God. He does say your God, not our God, to Samuel. He implores Samuel, but it's too late. This time the rejection is complete and final. As he leaves, Samuel tells him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this very day and has given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. So what do we make of this all? What does it mean for us today? I think if we want to learn from Saul's mistakes in this narrative, then we will learn firstly what happens when we separate out obedience from worship. And we'll also hopefully learn what happens when the worship itself, whatever that looks like, becomes more important than the object of worship. And I've been thinking over the past few weeks how this might apply in my own life. And, I mean, certainly I've never received the kind of divine, uh, direct command from God in the way that Saul did through a prophet. Uh, But I have been guilty of forming my own ideas of what a life of worship and obedience looks like and of placing that above true worship and true obedience. I think back, for example, to my late teens when I was firmly convinced that I was called to be an overseas missionary. And I'm not even sure now what fixed this idea so strongly in me. Uh, I was part of a church culture that saw that kind of calling as the ultimate in personal holiness. Um, I prayed that God would would lay an unreached people group on my heart. Uh, I went on short-term mission trips. Uh, I took a special interest in the missionaries that were connected to my church. I read biographies of famous missionaries. Uh, I told my non-church-going and somewhat bemused family that I wanted to go and live in a remote sub-Saharan African country, uh, community, I should say, um, even though I was still completely unsure as to what my actual mission would look like and would be at that point. Like Saul, there there was some success, even though my obedience was to a call that, for me at least, was probably more concerned with piety than with true worship. People in my church and my youth group praised my devotion. I was invited along to speak at mission-related events. I was held up as this model for missionary enthusiasm as a youth, and I was ready to follow the call of God overseas. Very ready. So when nothing materialised by the end of my undergraduate years, I doubled down. I I decided I'd go to Bible college. Where else would you go to prepare for a missionary career? And I went on another short-term mission trip, and this time it was on my own because that's a bit more serious. And I felt like if I kept praying and and getting other people to pray, uh, if I kept arranging trips, uh, then eventually the long-term stuff would fall into place. But really... I often found that I was using prayer almost as a strategic manoeuvre. I was was really trying to force God's hand by my sort of devoutness on this. So I'll skip to the end. It's a long story, but clearly I did not become a foreign missionary. Uh, And for a time when, when things were stalled, I resisted it. And I really looked for signs that was affirming God's will that they just really weren't there. And I'm not saying that mission work was a bad option or that even that I was wrong to pursue it, Uh, but certainly I had a more prescriptive understanding of what God's will would look like in my life than was actually the case. And I had kind of messed up thoughts of sacrifice bound up in all of it as well. I had kind of this idea that I had to relinquish my passions and my abilities, which, like, looking back, have always been aligned to a more academic vocation. But I kind of thought that's what holiness looked like. 
And I was definitely more concerned with the routines and the rituals that signalled that faithfulness. So for Saul, the separation of obedience and of worship uh, from each other looks like a preoccupation with the form of worship. He has the priest on hand during battle to provide oracles. He's offering for sacrifice what he was supposed to and commanded to destroy. For me, it was calling on God to bless a course of action that I'd already decided on and closing off, us, uh, closing off myself to other possibilities. And I've seen this tendency uh, manifest in other ways as well. Uh, I mentioned before that Saul's example warns us of the danger of placing the act of worship over the object of worship. So in his insistence on making the appropriate sacrifices to honour God, and yes, we're giving him the benefit of the doubt here, but when he does that, he disregards the specific instructions given him by God himself. And we can come, become preoccupied with the form and structure of worship too and take our sight off the object of that worship. And I'm not musically gifted in the slightest, but I'm told by musical folks that this is something that can be a challenge when it comes to playing music in worship. But for me, I think it can even be a factor when I teach. So I might worry about teaching well or about being organised, and it's not always for the right reason that actually the purpose of my teaching is to glorify God. I have to remind myself sometimes. So it's become my habit to, to pray before I speak or before I teach uh, that I'll do so just well enough that it's not going to distract anyone from hearing what I have to say and from the object of, of the lesson that we're having or the sermon, which is God. So I think if people come away thinking about me and not about what we we're supposed to be studying or, or thinking on, then I'm, I'm getting it wrong. But churches have split over matters relating to the form of worship. I actually came across a headline recently that read, church splits down the middle over issues regarding piano bench. And the article didn't say exactly what the problem was, so I'm kind of left wondering. But we fight over worship style, and we could also even extend this point to our theological differences. We draw big, bold lines that separate groups from each other on the interpretation and the understanding of particular doctrines. And, of course, theology and doctrinal understanding matter. I mean, I'd be out of a job if they didn't. But we shouldn't, and I'm not saying that we should dismiss difference as something that's inconsequential. But we do need to be able to see beyond the form of our worship and the particular expressions of faith that we uphold to the object of our worship and our faith. So Samuel rebukes Saul and says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. So rebellion, divination and stubbornness can take different and surprising forms as can obedience. So let's reflect on this as we pray. Lord God, you alone are worthy of our worship. Examine our hearts. Show us the times and ways in which we put other things ahead of you, where we focus on form over substance, where we direct our obedience to something other than you. Help us to discern true worship. Capture our wills and our faith to you alone. Amen.